the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy. He uh, certainly is. At least that's the rumor going around. And uh, we are here to say good afternoon to you. Happy Wednesday. It is the 20th day of June, and I hope you're doing well. Hope it's been a good week so far. We've reached the midpoint here, and uh, we're going to help you sail and slail. Maybe that too. (laughs) Sail right into the balance of uh, the afternoon and into your evening here, uh, hopefully quite comfortably. Let me begin first with a big shout out to all the folks who came by and joined us as part of our in-studio, or actually more accurately put, the in-sanctuary audience from our live broadcast that emanated from the facilities of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View. Had a nice crowd, a nice humble group of folks there that, you know, you're going to come out on a Tuesday evening at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and battle traffic. And, you know, probably there would have been tens of thousands. Then they found out I was going to be there. They say, ah, that bum. He's on the radio every day anyway. But anyway, we had we had a great group that showed up. And again, I want to thank the folks at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship for their wonderful hospitality, and as well, thank our uh, panelists, of course, the senior pastor from Abundant Life, Brian Loritz, then we, of course, had uh, Napoleon Coffin was there, Phil Howard, Steve Converse, and uh, all four guys just did a spectacular job. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you had a chance to hear it. If you missed it, you can check out the podcast, kfax.com, and uh, see what all the excitement was about. We're going to do another one of these, tell you more about it. It'll be coming up in the early fall. And, uh, ooh, yes, and uh, names and locations yet to be disclosed, but we'll, uh, we'll make sure you're the first to know when we get all the details, okay? Uh, we got some tickets to give away later on today. Is that the part of the plan of the program? Okay. I recommend giving away a car, too. And then, then Jarrell said the operations manager might, uh, might object to it. I thought, you know, give folks a nice new Toyota. But he said that, you know, the guy that currently owns it might be a little upset. So we might not do that, but we'll definitely do some tickets for the, <coughs> pardon me, for the Alameda County Fair. Um, we've got coming up a little bit later on in the program a visit with um, Candy Campbell. She is a registered nurse who's written a new book on uh, Florence Nightingale. She's sort of a Florence Nightingale herself. We'll talk about modern-day nursing. We'll talk about the challenges in the healthcare industry, one of the most vilified and yet needed aspects of American life. Get into all that conversation a little bit later on in the first hour of the program. Also, Sergei Rakuba, and I hope I'm not butchering that Russian too much, uh, the president of Mission Eurasia. Will join us later on in the program with a quick look at um, kickoff of what, of course, is um, the uh, World Cup taking place in Moscow here for the next couple of weeks. And we'll talk about uh, their outreach campaign that uh, simultaneously is occurring. Right now, though, let's begin with a story that's just beginning to get some traction. And some would suggest, based on the behavior of the United Nations, the so-called uh, Uh, Human Rights Council, that this is something that has been too long 
in the making as it was announced today, according to several reports, that the Trump administration is planning to withdraw the United States from the United Nations Human Rights Council. Tom Roberts, no relation, has more. Reuters reports that the move could be imminent and is due to clashes over key issues like Israel. In an op-ed published last June, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley blasted the council, accusing it of chronic anti-Israel bias. Tom Roberts, NBC News Radio. Oh, but of course, that's just the beginning. We go deeper now. Frank Gaffney joins us, president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Mr. Gaffney formerly acted as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy during the Reagan administration. And he also had four years of service as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear Forces and Arms Control Policy. Frank, it's always an education to have you join us on the program. I guess the fact that there are concerns about this imbalance, the the unfair practices, really, of the um, United Nations Human Rights Council is just sort of scratching the surface when we talk about Israel. I guess the other big point for me is when you look at the list of member nations, I think to myself, these people have something to say about human rights violations? Really? Well, they certainly have so far. This is the problem we've been facing is that we've been exceeding to the idea that uh, they have legitimacy. Um, Countries like Saudi Arabia and China and Cuba and uh, even uh, Venezuela are places that, unfortunately, we're um, all too familiar with the kind of abuses of human rights and, and, in more general terms, the kind of horrors that they represent for their people. And yet we have associated with them on these um, two different versions of this organization, the so-called Human Rights Commission, which was uh, found to be totally unsatisfactory by uh, George W. Bush when Ambassador John Bolton was our representative to the U.N. We withdrew from it. They promised they would reform it. Uh, They changed the name, and that was basically it. So the same cast of characters, I mean, literally, the same cast of characters, uh, human rights abusers and all, uh, the same bizarre preoccupation with Israel as the preeminent human rights violator on the planet, which is, of course, nonsense. And then, of course, the same, oh, same-o with respect to the U.S. taxpayer having to pick up the bulk of the tab for these operations. And so... I commend President Trump and uh, now National Security Advisor John Bolton, as well as, of course, Ambassador Haley and uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, for saying, we're out of here. High time. Given the list, as you suggest, the cast of characters for whom many uh, hold a long list of human rights violations, including China, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Venezuela. I was surprised to even see the Philippines on there. With all of the attention that Duarte has received for the crackdown on drug dealers or drug users, where these people are literally taken out into the streets, sometimes out of their homes in the middle of the night, in front of their families, and brutally murdered without the benefit of arrest, conviction, jury, judge, any of it. It's just, boom, we've made the decision, and so it happens, and that the Philippines would be a member of the Human Rights Council is just shocking to see this. Well, it is, but again, this is 
sort of vintage United Nations. Um, you, you've got all kinds of characters there. Uh, there are countries that uh, have no interest in freedom, uh, have no interest in security, uh, certainly ours and, uh, and the rest of the free world, um, let alone human rights. And to an extraordinary degree, it's those nations that call the shots in the organization. This, this particular, uh, uh, you know, agency of the UN is, is especially problematic, but, um, there are many others who are as well. The, the outfit that provides, um, welfare and relief for the Palestinians, for example, has been caught fostering terrorism in the Palestinian community. And uh, the UN peacekeepers, of course, have been notorious around the world for their rapes and their, uh, you know, oppression of, uh, of the people that they're supposedly trying to protect. Um, and it goes on and on. The, the fraud, the corruption, the, uh, the again, very explicitly anti-Western, anti-Israel, of course, anti-U.S., conduct of many of these nations, it's, it's really high time, I think, for us to be revisiting altogether what we're doing in the United Nations and whether absent fundamental reforms of the kind that have been long talked about and promised, um, it makes sense for us to continue certainly to be paying a quarter to a third of the overhead. Indeed so. And of course, when you look at um, some of the stark realities of things like, for example, in recent times, this particular council has passed resolutions condemning Israel more times than Iran, Syria, and North Korea combined. That's got, that's got to be uh, a reality that would cause any proper thinking individual to put the brakes on and say, now, wait a minute here. Now, with that said, let me ask the, the obvious or perhaps, Frank, not so obvious question. And that is, if the United States withdraws, withdraws itself, as it has been suggested now, um, from the U.N. Human Rights Council, then who's going to be left? Who will there be enough of fair-minded nations on that particular council to bring any sense of balance to it? Or is the whole point of the announcement of the withdrawal to, to make a point to the United Nations that this thing is really nothing more than a farce? I think it remains to be seen. Uh, the, the last time around, as I mentioned, uh, when the Bush administration withdrew from the predecessor of this group, the uh, Human Rights Commission, um, we were promised that there would be these changes, there would be reforms made, there would be improvements in its behavior, that uh, it, it would not be uh, essentially a fraud, uh, as it has been. And I think that this is, uh, this is likely to be the case again. Um, I, I don't know whether anybody will credit it, given that it didn't work out the last time. But I think they'll try that, uh, that play in the hopes that we'll continue to uh, provide you know, uh, subsidies for it and otherwise um, enable uh, it, to, uh, it to operate as though it actually is legitimate and real. Yeah. Sadly, this committee, like the U.N. in general, has wanted participation of the United States more because of the finances that we can provide than really anything else. And that's, that's extremely sad. Uh, the goals, the ideals under which the U.N. was established. Oddly enough, the U.N. Charter signed right here in San Francisco 
uh, right at the close of World War II, and yet it really has been a challenge uh, in the ensuing, what, 73 years now to live up to any of those ideals, because quite frankly, this has become more of a political body than anything else. Well, we appreciate the insights, uh, Frank, and uh, we look forward to getting a chance to visit with you again soon. We also got to catch up one of these days on uh, the North Korea summit between uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un and get your thoughts on that. So uh, perhaps for a soon future date. Frank Gaffney, President and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. You can take a look at Frank's work online at centerforsecuritypolicy.org. That's Center for securitypolicy.org. Frank Gaffney. Okay, let's get a look at traffic here. Six snow. Scared you there, didn't I? And you know the irony is, look at this, Jarrell. I got one, two, plus the one on the wall, three clocks that all tell me it's five, and yet I say six. Oh, boy, does he need a turnout to pasture. <laughs> 517, the clock says... Michael Bennett says this about your ride home. Hey, Michael. I think that's a part of the old uh, Soviet uh, Union's uh, army chorus doing a portion of Song of the Volga Boatman. Incredible music. And, of course, an incredible nation, all eyes of which are upon as Russia, Moscow in specific, hosts the 2018 World Cup. And, of course, you have both fans and athletes coming from around the world to participate in the 2018 World Cup soccer tournament in Russia. And, of course, as all these people gather and come into Russia and Moscow, it is a tremendous outreach opportunity, too. Sergei Rakuba joins us now, president of Mission Eurasia, with a look at World Cup and an opportunity for outreach. And, Sergei, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Greg. This is, as I indicated, an incredible opportunity when you have not only athletes but soccer fans coming from not only the, the, across the vastness of the former USSR but literally from across the world to watch and to participate in this. And I suppose with that, it's a tremendous outreach opportunity. But I just wonder, in the current political climate in Moscow, how challenging is that? Yeah, it is. It represents some challenges uh, since a few years ago when Russia posted uh, uh, the new law that regulates all the religious activity. They were supposed to do it, you know, in terms to regulate terrorist activity, but created an anti-missionary law that limits all the missionary or outreach activity uh, of uh, churches, especially evangelical churches, uh, just to inside of their walls. So anything they want to do outside, sharing faith, sharing, uh, you know, whatever, you know, so they would do outside of the church in order to share the gospel. Uh, unfortunately, due to this uh, new regulations, evangelical churches limited to do that only in the premises or in the boundaries of their premises, their walls. And that, of course, represents... Uh, uh, you know, certain challenges. So with hosting this World Cup Games in Russia, Russian churches, uh, despite of all these challenges, they realize that they can use the opportunity 
so uh, uh, they open their premises and invite people from their communities to uh, come and watch games together uh, in those churches, uh, organizing all kind of different uh, events, games, uh, and uh, that's the time when they will be building more relationship with people from the community, and most important, they will be sharing the printed Word of God, distributing Scripture with people that will be coming to spend time with them while watching the World Cup uh, games uh, in those churches. So it sounds like one of the the different dynamics that's taking place here, as opposed to what had been done uh, for a long time, certainly traditionally immediately after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a tremendous sense of openness that also meant that the, the religious vacuum that existed in uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union going clear back to the 19 or 17 revolution was now pulling in not only evangelical Christians from across the globe, but you had Mormons coming in, you had uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you had uh, cults groups. I mean, just seemingly everybody descended upon Russia. And so part of this, I think, has been a crackdown not only led by um, by the Kremlin, but also influenced by the Russian Orthodox Church. But it sounds like the strategy here is not necessarily outsiders coming in to evangelize Russians, but rather Russians evangelizing Russians. And of course, there's no more effective way of, of reaching others for Christ than to do just that. Yeah, and that, that's what uh, uh, Russian evangelical churches are uh, doing now during this uh, World Cup games. Yes, you're right, you know, so that when the Soviet Union collapsed, Greg, you know, so Russians or the, all countries of the former Soviet Union, soon the regime vanished, you know, over basically overnight. Uh, so they enjoyed freedom for last, what, over 25 years. But since recently, uh, enjoying that cozy relationship, uh, uh, Orthodox Church with the Kremlin, you know, with the current administration, they started seeing that, you know, all the foreign activity uh, from any mission groups, any religious groups, and they uh, claim that Russia uh, historically belongs to Russian Orthodox Church, so they're trying to monopolize the religious field, and that's why this new law, they call it the Yaravaya Package Law, uh, came uh, a, a couple of years ago. Uh, but... Uh, uh, sure, there is a, there is lots of challenges uh, uh, with uh, with the mission work there, but the Russian Church uh, using this uh, uh, chance, uh, you know, when the Russia is hosting the World Cup uh, games, they thought, you know, this is one of those still remaining opportunities they want to use to bring the gospel to their nation and bring gospel to their communities. I understand that uh, in key communities such as Moscow. Uh, more than 600,000 scriptures and 100,000 special edition and New Testaments uh, will be made available that can be t- used as uh, takeaways for those that would gather at local churches. Again, in a community fashion to uh, watch the World Cup, see all the action going on, and the same token, an opportunity to uh, uh, share the good news of the gospel. Toward that end, um, give us a look, if you can, uh, Sergey. In, in so far as the work that's being done by Mission Eurasia, I would imagine this is a pretty hefty undertaking for your organization from a, uh, a resource standpoint. What can and how should uh, the global church be partnering with you and praying for you? Yeah, you already mentioned 600,000 copies of scriptures uh, 
printed already and uh, already been distributed through the major cities where all these events uh, uh, will take place, organized by uh, local evangelical churches. And especially 100,000 copies of specially designed New Testament that equipped with a QR code, code. in addition to the Bible text, uh, it uh, will help people to upload enough uh, uh, material, so if I can say that, so where they can learn more about their first uh, steps in faith and how to learn more about a relationship with God. And the Global Evangelical Church can uh, definitely support, you know, this big undertaking, this big outreach program, and we still need resources. You know, we have to borrow uh, uh, some money from other uh, programs in order to print all of these resources on time to be available for these young leaders that are spearheading this big outreach in Russia. And people can go on uh, our website and learn more, learn more how they can pray for this event, how they can pray for the leaders, how they can pray for these teams uh, that are leading this outreach. But also people can uh, uh, give if God leads them to that and help us uh, to fulfill this big outreach uh, uh, program in Russia that I'm sure will have a huge impact. We estimate over 3 million people will be impacted with the gospel over the four weeks or four and a half weeks of uh, uh, World Cup games in Russia. But more follow-up will be done. So we believe that uh, hundreds of small groups will be formed and uh, uh, thousands of families and people will be, lives will be transformed in Russia with the gospel because of this uh, a global partnership, I should say, when evangelical church around the world supporting this outreach that's spearheaded by the evangelical church in Russia. And uh, so we would hugely, hugely appreciate people continue praying and supporting this uh, outreach. And, and I'll mention for long-time listeners to this program, this this shows you how, how far down the, the whiskers ago. <laughs> uh, it was just about 26 years ago, a time within less than six months uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, that we had the privilege of making a trip to Russia uh, in partnership at that time with Josh McDowell Ministries. And uh, what a delight it was, how amazing it was. Uh, to stand on the streets of Moscow and uh, pass out New Testaments in Russian, uh, pass out copies of McDowell's uh, best-selling book, More Than a Carpenter in Russian. Uh, we would gather outside of the metro stations, and my goodness, you could have a crowd, Sergey, of 50 or 60 people deep in an instant, uh, so eager, so hungry, uh, to hear more about uh, the good news of the gospel and the Christian faith. So uh, for longtime followers to the program that participated in some of those campaigns uh, back then to provide scripture for Russia, uh, this current generation of the church is uh, essentially uh, the offspring of your efforts and your prayers so many years ago. And so now I'm urging you to pray yet once again, stand yet once again with our brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia, and in doing so, uh, also prayerfully um, consider helping to underwrite some of the, the costs here. You can get details on the web at missionurasia.org. 
That's missioneurasia.org. And you say, gee, I, I'm not familiar with the outfit. Well, you certainly know uh, Peter Danica, and uh, this is Peter Danica's ministry. And we're so appreciative of um, what you're doing and the opportunity to provide uh, resources and materials to the church in Russia, uh, Sergei, in order that, that they might do all to, uh, to reach uh, fellow Russians for Christ. So God bless you in your endeavors. And we, and again, encourage our listeners to be in prayer for all of the efforts of a church leadership, as well as a Mission Eurasia in standing with this unique opportunity to share the good news during the World Cup as it is hosted by Russia and Moscow specifically for 2018. MissionEurasia.org. That's MissionEurasia.org. Sergey, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me. I'll, I'll, I'll spend the totality of my Russian. Das vidanya. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Sergey. Appreciate your time. It's a shame we spent three weeks there. That's that's all I can remember. Oh well, uh, that's a great mission, mission missions program. So we're we're thrilled with uh, with what they're doing. All right, five thirty two. Let's get a look at uh, traffic, shall we? And uh, Jarrell says, "Can you do the introduction in Russian?" No, I probably embarrassed myself there. He might have been gracious. So all I know, I ordered a cup of coffee. No, I, I think that says God bless you in Russian or something close to it. All right. Maybe a Russian friend will call us and straighten me out on that one. All right. Let's get a look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett's going to call up and uh, straighten us out on the ride home this Wednesday. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the program. By the way, we're going to be doing that uh, ticket giveaway coming up at 6 o'clock as uh, the crow flies. Is that right? Okay, excellent. And we've canceled the giveaway of the brand-new Toyota um, only because the guy that owns it didn't want to give it away. (laughs) All right, let's get down to cases, shall we? My goodness, health care, that is an issue. All of us think about, to one degree or another, certainly as we get older in life, and as we see the aging of America, these baby boomers, of which I am included in that list, 10,000 of us per day that reach retirement age, and of course, our retirement's going to be different than it was of our grandparents. One of the things is that we're going to live much longer because of so many advancements in modern science and in healthcare and in medicine. That also means that we're going to have a much longer engagement with the healthcare system in America. We know that it certainly is one of the best, and some would argue also one of the most needed and most vilified. We talk today about the general topic of healthcare and uh, the secret weapon that anyone who spent any time in a hospital certainly knows, and that is to say that while the doctor knows a lot, the doctor doesn't know what the nurse knows. Joining me today in studio is doctor and nurse. Candy Campbell. She is a registered nurse and author of a new book called Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, Innovation. And uh, Candy, welcome. Thank you. I'll call you Candy instead of doctor. Is that Please, okay? Please, that's fine. Excellent. Um, great to have you with us today. Let's talk about this. Um, more and more Americans will have more contact with healthcare professionals because maybe unlike our forefathers who might have retired at the age of 62 and dropped dead at the age of 65, we're living into our 80s and 90s. In fact, the number of centarians is on the increase. Helping to get us there is the field of healthcare. And yet, boy, with all the debate about insurance carriers and uh, the so-called Affordable Health Care Act, this has become one of the most vilified trades 
and yet, ironically, we all of us owe so much to it. Indeed, indeed. As a nurse and as a professor who is shepherding, uh, bringing up the newest crop of nurses, it's part of what we deal with every day because there seems to always be something on the news as we train these nurses to be the future leaders in our field because it's no longer just uh, grunt work, if you will. This is uh, navigating a whole new system. Nurses are integral in the process. And I wonder, you use the term grunt work, but if you look at the life of Florence Nightingale, of course, the uh, subject of your your book. You also do uh, public performances, which we'll talk a bit about in a moment, uh, related to Florence Nightingale. And, and, and certainly any nurse listening right now or CNA listening right now says, oh, yes, grunt work, a lot of it. But it seems to me that also the, the profession of nursing has been so critical to the degree that we could almost connect modern medicine today with Florence Nightingale because of advancements in just simple things like um, dealing with uh, controlled environments, in reducing patient infections. In fact, when she was uh, literally on the battlefield during the Crimea War, wasn't she responsible for reducing the number of soldiers that died by some astronomical number simply because it struck her that if we kept a cleaner environment, did a better job at cleaning wounds and reducing infection, that we could save lives? Indeed. Uh, one little part of it was that her hospital was actually about eight or nine days sail away from the Crimea. Oh, so it wasn't right at the war no. zone then. Okay. No, it wasn't, although she visited there at uh, Balaclava once. But, no, her hospital was in a little village called Skutari, which is outside of the eastern peninsula of Istanbul. And when they arrived at this 100-year-old dilapidated building, it was drafty and horribly not ready to receive thousands, and I mean really thousands, of wounded soldiers per day. As a matter of fact, they didn't have beds enough. They had few beds. Men were arriving with no shoes, and they had been ordered to leave their kit behind. They had no blankets. There was all kinds of fetid debris on the floor, and the walls were filthy. There were rodents and... Oh, my goodness. It wasn't a, a, you didn't have to have a big brain to figure it out that they, they needed to be cleaned up around there just, to, just for the first step. But the fact that she was the first to recognize this and really push for it uh, puts her at a groundbreaking level when it, within nursing, does it not? It, I don't think that people didn't notice. It's just that there was no help. And that in the day, her group of 38 nurses were the first in Britain, anyway, to be allowed to serve for the army. Now, the French had a totally different system. They had the Catholic nuns and the priests who were trained very well on bedside uh, care, and they had more money for supplies. They had a process in place, and their death rate was nothing compared to the British, and that in so incensed her. Uh, again, a woman of faith, she just 
got right in there, looked at the process and said, well, okay, they're upset that we're here because they think we shouldn't be here, but we can do something. And before they were allowed to actually work as nurses, as we would understand that term, they worked to do everything they could to cook and clean and make people comfortable, which, of course, if anybody's ever been sick, you know, that's, that's a part and process, process of the healing. Absolutely. And, and you, you mentioned the notion, um, and I think it's a broad perception, that the nurses do the grunt work. Meanwhile, the doctors do all the glamour work. They make the big money. We look to the doctor after the surgery and say, you saved my life. Rarely do we recognize the number of nurses that were behind the scenes that without whom the doctor would have been fairly useless. It strikes me, too, in terms of perception here, and this is at least what I observed in in my brief hospital stay a few years ago, and that is that because the nurses tend to have so much direct contact with the patient on such an ongoing basis that they can typically diagnose things well before a doctor becomes aware, they get a better sense of where the treatment is headed in a good direction or maybe not so successful direction far sooner than most of the physicians do. And I think that there is that sense that it puts the nurse in a very unique place that while we look at, I think, society generally as well, this is the woman that comes in and, you know, deals with my bed sores and bedpan and things of this sort, does the grunt work. But in fact, it's almost as if nurses are on the first line of medical defense, if we'll call it, from perhaps want of a better term. Is that accurate? I think we're the infantry of the team. Ah. Yes, because unless you have someone actually looking at you from head to toe and taking care to notice as they're dressing a wound or what have you of the progress, well, the doctors have so many more patients they just depend upon the nurses to tell them what is the status and, as you said, are we going in the right direction or not. So you almost then need to understand, is it fair to say, almost as much as a typical physician does? No, our, our training is different. Ours is more broadly based because you may have heard of that some physicians, and I, and I don't in any way want to denigrate their part of the team because we are a team. But physicians are tasked with being the captain of the ship and giving the orders and being, if you will, the detective that they and because their their patient load is so huge. Friends of mine who are physicians and nurse practitioners who who function in those sorts of roles tell me they have well, 500 people in their files, and if they have a group of five of them and they're on call for the weekend, let's say, they may have, you know, 2,500, 1,500 patients that they're responsible for trying to keep tabs on all of these people, whereas a nurse, generally speaking, depending upon whether it's on a medical ward or in an intensive care area, might have one or four or maybe even six or seven patients, they have to be the eyes and the ears for the doctors. Otherwise, the system would just collapse. So you really, in that sense, then have to become in tune with the patient, the patient's needs, and the patient's progress. Hmm. Definitely. 
We're visiting today in studio with doctor and nurse Candy Campbell. She's got a new book out called Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, and Innovation. And uh, the book is newly available. You can get it through Candy's website at candycampbell.com. That's spelled exactly the way it sounds, candycampbell.com. She's also got a couple of events coming up that we'll tell you about a little bit later on in our conversation. Meanwhile, let's take a quick time out, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, we'll talk about the lasting influence of Florence Nightingale. Right now, though, we talk about the lasting influence of traffic, I'm afraid, on your way home this Wednesday. Michael Bennett has the latest for us from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Exchanging war stories or uh, hospital experience stories here uh, off the air with the author of this new book, Channeling Florence Nightingale. Doctor and registered nurse Candy Campbell with us today. Um, what inspired you? Uh, obviously, other than perhaps the obvious, so the connection between uh, the impact of Florence Nightingale on modern nursing and, and your own career. But aside from that, what made you begin to really dive in and learn more about her that led to the book? As a student nurse, I think all of us are introduced to this iconic character and something happened in 2010 you know it was the 100th anniversary of her death which is kind of a weird thing but to celebrate but people did and another thing happened that year for whatever reason because I'm not behind the scenes in this her works all 200 books and articles and more than 15,000 letters were made public on the internet. You may need to be an academic to get some of them, but I was an academic, so I started reading, and I was so captivated. And I was doing my studies and talking about this, that, and the other thing that I was studying, and communication is a big part of that. And then um, one of my friends who's in the National Speakers Association, that's, I'm actually the president of our Northern California chapter now, asked me, he said, well, what do you do your doctoral work in? And I told him I'm, I'm doing it on uh, interprofessional communication or miscommunication, as the case may be. And he said, really, why aren't you doing it on Florence Nightingale? And I said, well, I don't think that's really a research project. That's a historical thing. I'd been talking about what I'd been reading. And he said, well, you're an actor, right? I said, yeah. And he said, is anybody doing a show? You've had two solo shows. Is anybody doing Florence Nightingale? I was like, well, a lot of people dress up like Florence Nightingale. He said, has there ever been a solo show based on her works that you just told me about? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to have to look that up. And so that was the beginning of the show that became the book. So he really planted a seed in that sense. And and in terms of what you've extrapolated out of all of this research that you've done into her papers, more than 200 publications, I think a lot of folks might be surprised to find out that she was that prolific of a writer over her course uh, involved in the nursing profession, but she indeed was. All of this, you've, you've kind of distilled it down into some very fundamental principles uh, that certainly guided her 
when she was involved in nursing in the 1850s to the nursing profession today. It's part of the subtitle of your book, Integrity, Insight, Innovation. Walk us briefly through those three, if you would, Cindy. When, when Florence Nightingale began, life was different in, in Britain. That was the Victorian era, and people had definite class stray, and she was part of the gentle, uh, you know, aristocracy. And yet she had a calling. She actually notes two different callings. The first one was just before she was 17, and she knew as uh, a believer that God was calling her for something. She wasn't quite sure. But one thing she was sure of, and that was that the people who espoused the Christian faith of her time, who had the means, the raison d'etre, if you will, the excuse me, the noblesse oblige, I mean, if you will, to help those less fortunate, or as Jesus said, the least of these, we're not necessarily doing it unless, like the Pharisees, it was going to bring them glory in the marketplace. And she bristled at that. She talked about it. It was not exactly parlor conversation that was accepted. And through her life, she had to make some really difficult decisions. One of them, of course, was to forego marriage and family she had thought that she would do those things. Of course, she had two uh, suitors, who, and, and one especially who, who she would have married, her a very good friend, uh, who she was friends with her whole life, uh, he and his later wife. But she made that decision based on the society that she lived in and the call of God that if she was really going to pursue what she felt was her life's path, and her mantle, if you will, that, that the Lord had taken the scales away from her eyes and shown her something that needed to be done. She needed to take that integrity that the Bible talks about, that our life, that we should walk the talk and not just talk, and that her life should carry it through. So, as opposed, so that was the integrity part. Her insight, I think, came when she looked around, and again, she was a young girl, she was looking at how people lived their lives, and then specifically her femininity. She never identified with what some people think she was, a feminist, because she didn't feel that speaking in public or rebel-rousing or beating her chest in public or whatever was the way to bring attention. She would much rather, and she speaks a lot about this, she would rather take action than speak it. And so she took the group, the the group that she was wanting to help were women who were needing to make some money. You know, in that day, you were kind of married or and taken care of or you weren't and a middle class woman who was a widow or perhaps she was uh, left you know she was not married anymore or she had gotten herself into a family way as she would say and had to make money to raise children these people were sometimes put into workhouses which is a kind of a warehousing of the homeless that they had in those days 
and they were destitute. The only way you could really make a living in those days was to be a midwife, maybe, or a, a nanny, maybe, or a nun, and she wasn't going to become a nun. She wasn't Catholic. Or you could be a prostitute. She didn't want to do that. So that was the insight part of it. And then the innovation was, I believe, stemmed from her curiosity. She loved traveling. And coincidentally, when her family took her to the European continent, she loved music and dance and all of the art. But then when some friends took her to Egypt, she had her second calling, as she put it, because she saw the life of the poorest people that she had never seen anything like that before in the United Kingdom, or Britain, it was called then. And she really strongly knew that she needed to go against her family, who were very vehemently opposed to her doing anything that might make them embarrassed, bring attention to them in a way that was not the usual. And she knew that she had to break with them if necessary and take the nurse's training. She really felt called to do it. And when she did it, then she realized, oh, I have all this education. I see. That's why God has called me to this, because I can make a difference. This really essentially for her then became a very deep vocation. This was more than just, ah, there's a nice job I think I'll pick. There was nothing whimsical about her career path choice at all. In fact, it sounds like she, she had to also weigh a number of potential sacrifices or risks that she would be taking in order to head into this direction. Oh, absolutely. First of all, like I said, the scorn of her family, her mother said, why don't you just become a scullery maid? And her sister didn't want to be seen with her anymore until, of course, she attained notoriety, and then everybody wanted to know her. But she was a humble person. She did not want the spotlight. When she came back from the Crimean conflict, they threw a big parade. Yeah, she didn't show up. (laughs) She didn't want that attention. There's there's a good level of honest humility. Let's pause on that point. Can you stay with us for another segment? All right, let's do that. We're going to take a quick time out, get you updated on some traffic. We'll come back with more. Our conversation today with Dr. and Nurse Candy Campbell, the book, Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, Innovation. Back with more of our visit as Lifeline continues. Right now at 6.01, let's get caught up on traffic here. Michael Bennett's got an update for you here from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.